on the viewpoint. Yes, indeed, we are back. Second hour, new conversation altogether, same old voices. Noloazi Tusini, of course, is the hashtag Tuesday takeover guest. She's done incredibly well in the first hour, and I think I'm going to yield even more time to her now in the 25 or so minutes that remain. Mr. Isaac Komo, former presenter of Spotlight Africa on Channel Africa, is now our guest on the hashtag African narrative. Of course, we're discussing unrest on the continent. Zimbabwe, Mali, Cameroon, Somalia, and many other nations have seen conflicts, and the rise in conflicts is increasing. In fact, even on our borders here in Mozambique, the the insurgence of terrorism, this is, of course, a reason and cause for concern. I suppose the basic question has to be, where is Africa failing that, generally speaking, it doesn't enjoy extended passages of time of peace and security? And to the extent that that is the obligations of the African Union and the African Commission, as the case may be, where might the failings be? Let's have a conversation with Mr. Isaac Komo. Sir, good evening. Your response to that? Isaac Komo, are you there? Nolazi, you got the question. How, how, How do you think perhaps this is an indictment on African democracies generally and the strength of, of, of our political systems, that Africa is not quite as settled from a peace and security perspective. And of course, women and children are especially vulnerable in such circumstances. Sure. I, I mean, I, I'm not an expert, Sonia, but I would say that it's, uh, for me, in terms of my understanding, it's quite a complex issue. There are quite a number of things happening on the continent. So we, we cannot deny um, Western interference into the continent. And this is a, uh, I know you remember a theme that came out quite strongly in the Nelson Mandela lecture um, that happened in July this year and the ways in which Western powers in the global north have interfered with African, um, uh, you know, uh, systems, political systems in different ways and what that means for the sovereignty on the continent and then what that means as well for peace and stability on the continent. Because if you do not have the basic right of self-determination, um, there will definitely be problems that arise from that. So there's, there's, that's the one thing. And the second thing would be the argument that is made around liberation parties and whether or not liberation parties are in fact um, suited to be the ones that lead um, countries and states post liberation and in democratic dispensations, a lot of people would say the answer to that is no. And to be quite honest, uh, many people would state South Africa as the one uh, country that had a liberation party that was relatively successful uh, in a democratic society. But based on the conversation that we've just had with Mabusum Simang, that would be, to a certain extent, uh, someone could go so far as to say that that is a farce. And so I think that when we're talking about instability on the continent, we need to look at these two factors, at the kinds of leadership um, that are in charge and how it is that they, they, they became in charge and whether or not they feel suited to lead and govern our countries and also look at the, uh, the ways in which Western powers have uh, interfered on the continent. I mean, Barack Obama himself. Um, you know, admitting mm. the fact that one of the worst mistakes of his presidency was the ways in which they intervened in Libya. And we've seen the results of that. We've seen people literally on the, dying on the Mediterranean um, uh, Sea in little planks trying to get um, to, to different countries and to freedom and to safety, etc., as a direct result of those uh, 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 actions by the Obama presidency. So I would say that it's a complex, um, uh, you know, sort of question, and I hope uh, uh, that our guests will be able to illuminate it better than I have for us. 
Sure, sure. I do understand that uh, Mr. Isaac Como, Isaac Como, the presenter of Spotlight Africa, formerly anyway on the channel Africa Bouquet, is back on the line. And some of those complexities, you are perhaps in a position to engage us in dialogue and the Como in relation to the stability of the continent, peace and security in particular, and the vulnerabilities it creates for lack of peace and security, women and children especially. What has been the biggest challenge for the African continent such that every now and then it is guaranteed to have a region that enjoys instability at a political level? Why is that? <laughs> That's a very big question. And uh, to answer that question, really it requires time, but I'll do my level best. But sure. First of all, uh, hi to you and hi to our listeners and hi to your fellow presenter. Eh? Well, you see, the African... Um, uh, what do you call it, uh, issue of peace and security. If you look at it historically, you know, you find that Africa was very unstable yeah? uh, in the 70s in the days of the OEU. But at that time, the instability, the challenges to peace and security, it was just the one thing. It was fight against settler colonialism. And the rest of Africa was relatively very peaceful. But uh, once uh, the, the problems of Southern Africa, the settler colonialism was solved, and then the African continent moved into the new era, and that's the era of democracy, yeah? And also the era of the uh, neoliberal uh, market um, economies, market-driven economies, yeah? And uh, the Western dem democracies, you find that a new thing came out, and what came out was this, that all of a sudden Africa was dry with uh, conflicts. And these conflicts were basically conflicts within African countries, and they dealt with uh, issues of, not even of democracy then, they dealt with issues of uh, ultra-nationalism, where people were fighting against another people, they were tribal, they were ethnic, yeah? And this was in a time when there was a lot of... Um, so-called um, uh, democratic, the democratic dispensation was there. Now, that was well explained by uh, political scientists. Yeah, we were at AISA. And that person was not even an African, he was a Norwegian. And he actually said that that's an uh, international uh, phenomenon. He said that under neoliberalism, what has actually taken place with the so-called market economies, was this that the political economy of all countries in the world has been predetermined. They've got market economy, market driven. Yeah. That is the standard, be it in Europe, be it in, uh, in the USA, in America, and be it in Africa. So you find that in the political arena, issues of, uh, of the economy, economic issues, and political issues were no longer on the agenda. So all political parties basically, they tend to follow one already established uh, social political uh, setup or a uh, political economic setup. That's the reality all over. But then we said that in its place, the political parties and the politics, in the polity, a new issue has come up. And that issue is politics of identity. He was very good at it. He said that in Europe, the politics of identity first started with uh, issues of gender, issues of uh, 
well, we know it. Liberation, uh, the rights of the of, of all the minority groups and other groups, uh, yeah, and that actually became the main topic of politics in the 90s, mid 90s in Europe. In the African continent, in absence of issues like that, uh, generic issues, what took its place was issues of tribalism, ultranationalism. These uh, regional elites within the country of tribal elites in trying to come and get into power, they politicize ethnicity. Yeah. So this is actually a trend throughout the world, but it takes different forms in different places. So that's why he said that uh, the post-liberation um, uh, war period in the African continent, we find this thing of very, very dangerous uh, wars. Uh, Rwanda being the worst, uh, DRC, uh, these are ethnic and regional. Uh, Uganda, they're regional. Uh, all over. Yeah. In fact, even the continuation of uh, in Angola, where you find that after having independence, there was UNITA and MPLA. But UNITA is actually a regional body. Yeah, these are in contention. And also in Mozambique, basically, people do understand the, 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 the divide in Mozambique. These are regional elites fighting for power, and that is all over the African continent. Now, Let me ask uh, this question. Yes, sir. Because I do want to zero in, because it, it is a very fat topic, yeah, as it were. Let, let's focus. You started with an open question. That's why it will take a long, long time. Okay, go ahead. Absolutely, absolutely. And yeah. I appreciate the fact that you gave me scope to sort of zero in on this. Let's focus, mm -hmm. and if you will, together with my guest host, Noloise, can we focus on identity politics? Because even then, it is layered. It's layered on ethnicity, on race. It's layered on class. You alluded to it just now in your response. And the neo-frontier of now is the scramble and battle for resources. So there are always reasons for African communities to differentiate almost from within. Of course, this is predicated on the divide and conquer system, which was perfected by the colonial system. And even after the colonial system itself had left, it's its systems were entrenched. Its roots are there because divide and conquer mm -hmm, works mm -hmm, very well. Mm -hmm. South Africa, no less. You look at Rwanda, for instance, 1994 genocide, shy on a million people culled in one year. This is the effect then of identity politics, of identity related issues. Could the continent ever overcome that or find a permanent working solution as we seem to be seeing happening in Rwanda? Your thoughts. No logic can ask the next question. In fact, you asked a very pertinent question, you know, and again, even its answer, it's a bit longish, huh? it's, it's such high-winded. High <laughs> you know, uh, in my program that I've been doing, I did a very good program on uh, African nationalism. And I had um, uh, Dr. Kabenda, yeah? Dr. Kabenda mm -hmm. to come and explain it, yeah? Now, he actually said that the issue of... Uh, ethnicity or tribalism in Africa, it's not a thing that people should actually take it for granted that's a weakness of Africans. Yeah, it is a product of what African nations are. He said that, sorry I'm being, I'll take a long time, but I think it's good for our listeners to understand this. Sure. African nations, the concept of nation in Africa is very new. Africa comes from uh, colonial, yeah? States, not even nations, they come from colonial states. 
These were ter- yeah. a territorial issue which was put together by a foreign a colonial state. And the way it was put together, it was coerced. So in a colonial state, the most important thing is the coercive elements of states. Yeah? The, the, the colonial state, the police, whatever it is. But then you find that when it came to independence, these colonial states were supposed to be nations. But then the, mm-hmm. the, the elites, or the people who took over power, they had a job of building a nation. And the yeah. lines are I... well known, which are ethnic. So you find that, yeah. you know, he actually said something very serious. You find that the, the, the original leaders of the Africa, independent Africa, that was the biggest challenge that they had. And the way they got around it is something that people don't understand. They said that they've got to build a national uh, unity, nationhood. So the first thing they that said that, the, just a minute, let me finish. So the fissure line is on ethnicity, and these have been politicized. That's why you find that they have a lot of one-party states. Huh? But then you find that I, I, I hear you. Hold on, Dr. Hama, I hear you on, on, on ethnicity and the importance of identity politics um, on, on the continent, and it's a very pertinent point. But I just want to touch a little bit on, on you know, what Sonega was saying around resources. I, try, I touch around resources because you, you're speaking about the effect. Sorry, you, you know, I touch around what? No resources. On, on, on the continent, and I think that resources play an important part, right? We see yeah, yeah. in the in the Afrophobia attacks that we see in South Africa that, for me, I think that a big part of that is that you find the poorest in our societies fighting for the most basic resources, and that's when they become xenophobic and Afrophobic, and they talk about Zimbabweans taking jobs from South Africans, etc. So I'd like for us to have a conversation about um, you know, the nature of the resources on the continent, the ways in which the resources are not fully available to the people that exist on the continent and how that then fuels, um, you know, the ethnic tensions that we see because then resources are, are not properly um, spread out amongst people. And that's part of the reason is uh, the colonial hangover that we have and the, the powers that the global north still holds over the continent. Okay, that's a very simplistic uh, reason for saying what the fighting is over, you know. But and the other thing I was answering my the gentleman's uh, question about uh, ethnicity, but now you're taking it to resources. That's a, okay. I'll, I'll get there. You see, the issue about resources, the fighting about resources, people think that uh, the black diamonds and everything else. Basically, if you look at these wars which are centered around resources, be it in the DRC, be it in uh, West Africa, the diamonds. Yeah, we uh, eat in um, in other places. Uh, there are other resources which have been really fought for due to desertification. But let's take a look at these mineral resources. Basically, is that these elites who are actually fighting to get political power through ethnicity or regionalism to actually come and finance their own wars, they have got to come into the black market of resources. And the biggest resources are gold, Diamonds, timber, huh? These are the things which have been used. And now, when it comes to other organizations uh, like uh, Al Shabaab, they've also got uh, resources which they use to, to, to finance their wars. And the cut, which is a drug uh, thing there. Yeah? And the same thing is happening in Latin America, in South, in South America. 
In Latin America, you find that uh, when these other organizations, when they're fighting their wars to finance their, their, their armies, they get into resources. Yeah? They eat gold, and then also they eat uh, cocaine. Yeah? These are resources. In Somalia, they are getting into resources. They're taking people's uh, uh, mango trees, cutting them down, getting them into charcoal, and then from there, they're selling them off. But there's other resource wars, like in the food, due to desertification, where the, the pastoralists now are moving permanently into the regions of the agriculturists. Yeah, that's what took, taking place in, in the Sahel, although that area is very complex, because you've got a multitude of, uh, of, of, of scenarios, yeah, the Islamists, and also again you find that the, uh, the pastoralists, pastoralists are fighting against the, 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 the sedentary, yeah, those are the Fulanis, yeah? that is across the whole belt. They're running away from the movement of, 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 uh, of the desert. So basically, resources is actually mixed in the whole thing. But then again, when it comes to resources, we find that it's not only the Africans who are involved amongst themselves fighting for these resources. Now they've got the international players, be it the international government, Western governments, or be it the international uh, companies. Yeah, I'll give you a typical example of the Congo Brazzaville. Yeah? You had Pascal Lisuba, who was, uh, 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 who, who was elected democratically. When he was elected democratically, he actually wanted to change, yeah, to change the, the divide of profit between the uh, Elf Company, the French oil company, and the government of, of Congo Brazzaville. The Congo Brazzaville government was getting less than 10%. and it was getting about uh, 5 to 7% of all profits emanating from its oil. The French would not, else would not agree to that. So he invited the Americans who offered them a 30%. But whilst he invited the Americans, the Americans started prospecting. He had a rebellion. Now that rebellion, it was financed by Elf. And eventually he was overthrown. Huh? But it was the Elf company which was there. And things were just as normal. The same thing happened in Niger with Amadou Tanzi. Yeah? Niger is the biggest, second biggest exporter of uranium, uh, uranium concentrate after Canada. But under the United Nations, Niger is termed the poorest country in the world. Now, the Vera company of the France, France that's making profit in the billions of dollars. Now you find that when they sell the Avila, which is mining the, 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 the uranium, when they sell the concentrates, which cost about, which used to cost about 150, I think, to 200 dollars a kg, the government of Niger was only getting less than 20 American cents to that thing, to, to a kg. The rest of the money has been taken by Avila. Amadou Tanji said, no, we've got to renegotiate. The French would not do it. He brought in the Chinese. The Chinese said, okay, we divide 50-50. From then on, Amadou Tanji was faced with a rebellion. That rebellion was a toilet rebellion. But then, with his own intelligence, they discovered that a Vira company was financing that rebellion. The only thing they could do was to take the general manager of the Avira company and expel him from the country. So now you find that there are many faces of these so-called resources. Huh? Those are problems when people want your oil. That also happened also in the CAR. 
That's what happened to also to 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 there are many cases. So we actually have got to take each and every case, case by case. We let us not just blanket so that these are the sources, that and that. There are many drivers. But among Africans themselves, like in the Eastern DRC, those resources which have been looted there, they're there to finance these ethnic wars which are taking place. Now, that's a good point, and I think you do, you, you do reply to what Nolose ultimately was interested in. Can we just take a couple of voice notes, please, which will be our final engagement in relation to callers or contributions from the public, and then after that, please take one minute and the Homo to reply, because we are already out of time, but we will indulge the voice notes and a minute of your response thereafter. I think as African, we are not willingly to die for one another. Because look what is happening in KZN. Every single day you hear stories of killing. You listen to Mozambique in Capital Garden where they find a gas and what. Every day they're killing people there. And Zimbabwe always oh, the worst. So all this thing is happening but no one is willingly to go there and then try to uh, find out exactly what's going on. Because as a person like me, I don't have a gun. I cannot go there. We need people who are willingly to do that with the proper uh, method of doing that. Thank you. Even in Swangeso, why is that each time in Africa when we talk of self-determination, give us to you know, the room to be sovereign and do what we want, it has always been leading to oppression of the people by the people that liberated them why is that so and secondly the other question would be if the most of the analysts who seem to praise so much of the way we do things in africa lived in conditions where people are oppressed in those countries i don't know if they would still share the same views like they do now thank you Thank you so much to those two contributions. And Dr. Homo, one minute, please. Oh, one minute. I don't think you can answer one minute. But I mean to say we that... Um, in, okay, okay, I'll try. In the level, the first thing is this, that uh, I'll just go directly to say that the AU said that uh, the silencing of the guns in 2020. And once that was said by the then the Dilko head, head uh, that was uh, Masi Sulu, I laughed and she did not like it. But it's true and they'll never do it. Yeah. But then you find that, again, is this, that when you talk of uh, the wars in Africa, you've actually got to see them in a, in, in, a, in, a, in a matter that these wars, basically, they've got a source, and they've also got, um, they've, they've got a source. But then coming to the thing of silencing the guns or getting rid of the thing, you find that the body which has been given that duty is very weak. I'm talking about the AU. We can talk about many things where the AUS failed. The AUS failed to take over yeah, wars and to uh, getting solutions to wars like in the CAR, where the CAR solutions were actually had to be forced on by the French. And it was only Ban Ki-moon who came to save the Africans by having a UN yeah, solution. At that time, sure. our own head of uh, the AU was our own, our own lady. They failed to come up with a solution. They failed to come up with a solution of Bolivia. Yeah, all these regional battles, they are failing simply because the Africans themselves are not united.
That's a good point to leave it on, Mr. Homo, because when you say Africans are not united, it simply means we have to then go back to the drawing board and assess whether or not... No, 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 let's not be Africans. I'm saying we've got a minute which has now been exhausted, Mr. Homo, so unfortunately I cannot proceed with your thoughts. Mr. Homo, please, cannot proceed because we've run out of time. Yeah, yeah, but... Mr. Homo, we have run out of time. We cannot proceed with the conversation on another day, perhaps, but we simply cannot proceed. We wish you well. We thank you for your time and we wish you a good evening. Noloazi, say goodbye to the listeners, please. Uh, thank you so much, Tongezo, for having me on your take over Tuesday on The Viewpoint. I've thoroughly enjoyed our time together. Uh, this evening, and I do hope that you, uh, we can do this again when I can be in studio. I want you to make a public declaration of this promise so that I can hold you to it. You know, we believe in accountability that we've been holding uh, the ANC to uh, in this show. I'll simply pass the buck on to the producers when the moratorium on in-studio <laughs> guests is lifted. They know exactly what to do on the basis of this accountability thing you've thrown my way. For now, it's safe to say we've thoroughly enjoyed your time and your very incisive thoughts as well as questions. Dolwazi, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Good night. And everybody else at home, your contributions, always appreciated, as always. I never have enough time, 21.30. I would love an extra 15 minutes, similar to when I first started the show. Of course, things have changed. And now it's time for the book reading. Good night, everybody.